Hey, how's it going, everybody? You're listening to another episode of the Super Mercado Brothers Video Game Music Podcast season finale. Wow. Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Carl Brueggemann. And I'm his brother, Will Brueggemann. And we're joined once again by our third brother, Marty. Can't believe it. So glad to be here, guys. It is the podcast that shares and discusses the very best in video game music and sometimes breaks it down very in-depth, but it's been how many years? Five years since we've done one of these? This is Breakdown in Analysis three so the first one that we did like this was our first episode that we ever had marty on i think it was our 10th episode Um, and then it was in the hundreds that we did another one yeah and (laughs) that's it so we really have been dropping the ball with these uh we've gotten so many requests over the years to do another one and so we thought it was so fitting for this finale to get marty back and to finally do another breakdown and analysis this is going to be exciting yeah it really doesn't seem like it's been that long but there (laughs) there's a toddler-sized baby that was born that day that's now and <laughs> also around. there is yeah. so many different houses and places we've all been oh in if gosh, you remember yeah. the first two were both recorded in that old apartment of mine old apartment yeah and we've all <laughs> moved many times since then and so yeah right. uh this is going to be really fun for those of you who might not be familiar with what these episodes are we've only done two of them there are episodes where we instead of playing 18 or 19 pieces of music we really in-depth analyze and break down three pieces of music each one of us takes the helm and what we do is we talk a little bit more about things like music theory and structure hopefully they're a little educational for some of you but still hopefully entertaining so that's kind of the idea behind these episodes and part of the reason we're doing this is because uh in a typical episode you know carl and i try our best to give our impressions of the music and maybe examine one particular facet of it and hopefully right. an overview but it's really just a cursory understanding that we go into with almost all the tracks that we play the point mm-hmm. of this i think is to break down a little bit more slow things a lot down more. <laughs> get into the meat and potatoes of how we think something right. was composed and allow ourselves the time to kind of yeah elaborate. yeah and what's so fun about video game music is there's specific kind of formal constraints that go along with i think all three of the pieces we're playing yeah are loop-based compositions that's that's a really have, good point well you know harmonic and melodic um needs that are specific to that type of music well in one really fun way that we do these episodes is we actually have a piano in front of us right here and so that's really fun. We're able to uh, play excerpts from it and really break it down for you guys. So this is going to be a lot of fun. What do you say? Should we dive into the first piece of the day? Let's, oh, let's do, it. do it. So, Carl, I see you're sitting behind the, <laughs> the keyboard. So uh, what do you have for us today? I am going to break down and analyze France from Outrunners, originally for the arcade, composed by Takanobu Mitsuyoshi. So good. This is a classic video game piece for our family. One of our all-time favorites. We do also perform this in the Mercado Band as well, and so we're all very intimately familiar with this. Let's start off by taking a listen to a little bit of France. So, like I said before, one of our all-time favorites, 
such a special tune, such a unique tune for Mitsuyoshi, for racing music. I was really excited to break this down because the tunes that Marty and Will are going to break down, you know, spoiler alert, they're not jazz. Um, And this is a tune that we can kind of talk about what's so special when it comes to jazz music. And one of the things that I love about jazz music is the complexity, maybe harmonically, how something is structured, but then the smooth and the easy experience when you actually listen to it. Because when you listen to a great piece of jazz music, and this is not just jazz, it's fusion, it's video game, quirky music. When you (laughs) listen to it, you want it to be easy. You don't want it to sound challenging. And this tune is amazing because it's so blisteringly fast. The chords come at you so fast, so many modulations, and really like difficult chords um but the experience couldn't be easier right it almost has this elevator music quality to it how happy it is definitely definitely a pastiche piece to to kind of classic jazz standards i would say so i want to break it down let's start by talking about the chord progression but i want to just talk about the bare bones so i'm not gonna yet get into the actual extensions and alterations that he uses let's just talk about the bare stuff so we start with one of the most elemental jazz moves a two five one Okay, that's what starts out this tune, France. Um, And so some sort of D minor, some sort of G dominant, and some sort of C major. So we're setting up the key of C is where we start. But immediately after that, Takanobu Mitsuyoshi moves to something really surprising. He moves to a four chord, a chord um, with an F in the bass, except if it was diatonic... It would be a major seven. We hear that a lot in jazz. We'd go to that chord. He doesn't do that. Instead, he goes to some sort of dominant chord built on the four, which is really hip, really spicy. But why does... Yeah, bluesy. Why does he do that? There's a reason, I think a functional reason why he does that. Well, it's to set up a new key. If that was a new five, it would set up B flat, which is what he's moving on to. So the next chord he's moving on to is some sort of B flat major. Carl, can I just say, I love hearing you talk about theory because <laughs> I've never had a lesson from you. And so this is, it's fun to hear <laughs> you talk about this I am kind of approaching this, this almost like one of my lessons. So we've moved now to the first new key of now we're in B flat very briefly, right? It's not going to last very long because what is he going to do next? Well, he's kind of going to set up another two, five, one. It's a move that he's going to do a bunch of different times. And so as soon as we've heard that B-flat major, I'm playing a B-flat major 7 here. Later, I'll tell you what it actually is. Um, he's moving to some sort of B-flat minor mm-hmm. very briefly, but it's not just a regular B-flat minor. It's, I'll tell you, I'll just, spoiler alert, it's a B-flat minor 9 over E-flat, and so it's over the 5. Now, this is a pretty common chord, that kind of minor 7, 2 chord over 5. I've used it a couple times in downforce especially when it resolves to a major one chord. And so he's now setting up yet another new key because he had the B-flat major. He has the the minor 9 over 5 to a new one, which is now A-flat. So now we're in yet a new uh, key, very briefly. And then he's going to do the same move that he did before, going to this 4 and making that dominant again. Right. And that's where he's going to end his sequence because half-step-wise he can move back to where he started with that D minor. So ending on a C sharp, dominant, we'll tell you what it is later exactly, and then moving 
backwise to uh, stepwise to a D minor. So w- one thing that you mentioned, Carl, that I think is uh, really great, which is that really the the bare bone skeleton structure of this piece does have to do with uh, a series of modulating two five one progressions. Yep. And the right. two five one, we're not trying to throw a bunch of numbers at you, but that's sort of like the meat and potatoes of functional jazz harmony. It and really the is. reason why is because the two chord serves is kind of a a subtle almost like it, it works as almost having a dominant function to the five chord it's all leading and, and that one of the biggest and most successful elements of this song is although it's very complex and moving it's blazing by you every single element in the song is trying to be as smooth as possible to guide you from chord to chord sometimes challenging mm-hmm. dissonant chords but it's going to be as smooth as possible to guide you mm-hmm. and that is an idea of jazz as well right. and so the b section we have very similar chords some sort of d minor to some sort of g dominant a c another surprising f dominant then we go to an actual you know a parallel major version of a chord we've heard a lot so a d major now a b7 a slash finally ending on an a and then an a augmented Such a beautiful mixture both the a and the b sections of moving through the circle of fifths and yes. then some other subtle motion absolutely um, so he breaks we'll talk about circle of fifths a little bit fifths, later but yeah. he does break the circle of fifths a couple times so now let's talk about the actual extensions and alterations he uses but we want to talk about the actual voicings because those go hand in hand the right. actual voicings that he uses are so effective part of it is he was writing for old hardware originally the sega arcade and and then it was converted to the Genesis. He most likely only had three channels left for the chords, and I honestly wouldn't change a thing about that. Extending it any further, fleshing it out any further, I think would just sound worse and and just more muddied. So these three-note voicings are so hip, and I'll play them uh, for you guys. So on our first chord, that's the voicing he uses, and now it's clear that this is a D minor nine. And so the voicing he uses, if if he, he's never going to give you the root, he's never going to give you the fifth because he really doesn't need them. He has the nine on the bottom, the third, and the seven. So and that's e, such F, a and C. common sound in Japanese video game music. Yes, those, those particular three notes. Yeah. You sometimes hear it in a major seven context like in an F major seven but yeah exactly just like, well, well what's it's not row. so uncommon in jazz to hear I mean that that's oftentimes those are called shell voicings when exactly you have just right. third Your seventh and ninth it's really all is... you need and what's really particularly effective about this tune is he always has a cluster on the bottom a really dissonant cluster of either a minor second or a major second always and then he, he leaps up usually by a fifth for the top note So let's listen to how he continues this pattern. So this is the first voicing. It's as smooth as possible. He's definitely utilizing smooth voice leading in this entire song. And so what's the one note that he would have to change to get from this to this? It's the top note. He moves from C to B. And now that we know that, we can say that this G dominant chord is actually a G7 add 6. That's the actual chord. He's not going to play that. He's going to play that which is even spicier but it's very smooth because we had just heard this so our ear is used to hearing this dissonant cluster already and so he's going to keep it going so the second chord we have the g7 at six and that leads very nicely to a c major nine is the next chord he's just moving the down cluster down (laughs) keeping the top note where it is now this is when the spice really happens for this F chord, what it actually is, guys, it's an F7 
you guessed it, add six. He loves these dominant chords with an add six in this tune. And so the cluster we have, we have D, E flat, and A. And Marty, if he was playing it, <laughs> would be hitting that F, okay? So that, that is... That's really special because you, you encounter a lot of 13 chords in jazz mm -hmm. where that D would have been up the octave. Exactly. Right? It's, it's a lot more rare to hear it in Absolutely. that Absolutely. It's almost it like, I, it almost seems like he was more inspired by the voice leading and the specific right hand voicing of having that step right next to each other that whether it's a half step or whole step and that's where it's either the third and ninth or it's the fifth it's, and sixth it's, a, it's such an important part of the tune and part of it is because he wanted that spice that grit right. and it really comes from the organ patch on the original tune the right. organ is playing and man is there a grit sure. to that and, and it there's sounds a lot of really overtones cool. with that kind of sound so we had so we land on the c major nine we go to that that weird f dominant chord that leads very nicely to the next chord we have, which is a B-flat major 9. Again, he has the 9 on the bottom, then he has the 3rd, and then he has the 7 on the top. That very quickly moves to that chord we were talking about. This is a B-flat minor 9 over E-flat, and the voicing he uses is C, D-flat, and A-flat over E-flat. It's a little unclear at this point, is that a B-flat chord? What is that chord? But what he does is he re-articulates it quickly with, this is very rare for this song, a regular good old-fashioned root position triad of B-flat to really drive it home that this is a two chord that is right. setting up a new one. I think that's a smart that's really device nice. there, especially yeah. because he's using a slash chord. What we're hearing in the bass isn't the root, so exactly. it actually makes it really helpful when you hear the root of the top chord just spelled out in a very plain way. Another reason why he may have chosen to play that E-flat is because it follows the circle of fifth progression right. for the root note. So let's right. keep going, though. So we have that. We have... This is the voicing he uses for the next chord, A flat major nine. He resolves on this crazy C sharp dominant chord, the six to the five, which, spoiler alert, the melody will also do that same thing. Uh, just breezing through the chords of the B section, we have more, now more closed voicings here. So E, F, and A, D minor nine. Now this is even more extended. So what this chord is, is this is a G seven flat nine add six. Okay, so that's the chord. He's not going to play that because that would sound really bad. He's going to play the same voicing we just had. One note is going to go down. So we have E, F, A flat. Very tasty. That resolves really nicely to a, I, I would call it a C add 2 because we don't hear the 7. So is it a C major 9? Is it a C add 2? Uh, it's really pretty. Uh, and then now it's going to be an F9 add 6 to resolving to F9. And then we have this really gorgeous D add two chord, a major chord. Keep the exact same voicing and move the bass down to B and it gives you a B7 sus4. Resolves quickly. Does an interesting slash chord where it's, it's implying a B7 sus4 still, but the bass is now on the sus note, on the E, before we end with a two note voicing of A to A augmented. So the next thing I want to talk about, that is the, the, the basic chord progression. I'm going to play through the rhythmic pattern because that is so important of what these chords are actually doing rhythmically. Totally. It's one of the catchiest parts of the tune. So I'll try my best here. That will repeat and then we move to the B section. Thank you. 
Okay, so that's the progression we have. That leads us to the next really important element we have to talk about this tune is the bass line. It's an incredible bass line. The way that it works um, with the chords, rhythmically, there's a lot of interplay. It's these two interlocking puzzle pieces. Um, what you guys might be hearing underneath quietly is that bass line here. Uh, with the chords of the Sega version that you, that, that you can hear there in the background. So let's let's break down the bass pattern. The bass pattern is very, very busy, very difficult. Marty can attest to this, especially if you're playing it on a real electric bass. Yeah, I definitely come up short often. <laughs> and it's well. very chromatic, but there's a reason for that. I do think there's a functional reason for that. So the pattern we have is something along these lines. That's the basic idea of the bass pattern. Now, it's yes, it's very funky and very mm. busy, but he's setting up the next chord in a very smooth way, right. descending chromatically down so that we can telegraph that moment so that it's, it's smoother for the listener. And so going from the first chord, having that chromatic descent is just a really good way to add uh, a smoothness to the progression again to guide the listener through right so we have Supports that the comping in a really nice way yeah it too. really does and the b section is a great contrast in every element of the tune because first of all the chord progression slows down uh it's half the speed with the changes which is a sigh of relief for everybody including <laughs> the listener and the sure. band right and the bass pattern is a lot more simple here but very effective Okay, now that little pattern, there's something really important there. We talked about this progression being a circle of fifths progression. What that means is if you take the root note and you go down a fifth, you'll get your next chord. So from D to G, go down to fifth C, that's what we have. Then F, we have that. We go down B flat, that's what we have. We go down again E flat. Well, kind of, It's at least it's in the bass. Go down again A flat, go down again D-flat or C-sharp. Now with the B section, he kind of still does that. He breaks it a little bit. But listen to this really important thing. We have our D minor 9 chord, and listen to this bass pattern. He's evoking the fourth in every single one of these chords, and the fourth is the same thing as going down a fifth. So that's what the next chord will be. He's, he's telegraphing that G, and there we go. That's the next chord. Hey, what do you know? That's, That's cool. the next I'm, chord. I'm looking at it that way. That's great. That F is the next chord. Well, in addition, it's also calling back to, uh, in the A section, the bass kind of has this repeated motif of flirting with the seventh. Yes. Of kind of going down a whole step. Mm -hmm. And now it's almost evoking that, but now rather than being the seventh, it's the fourth yeah. and setting and up so the new And so this is such a tonic. brilliant example of a perfect bass line because he's adding that fourth because uh, it's more busy, it's more melodic, it's funkier for sure, a little more dissonant, but it has a functional reason, which is, again, to telegraph the next chord to guide you through sure so the last element here that does that brilliantly is the melody um, every single element of this tune helps to smoothen the transitions between these challenging chords to make the experience uh, really enjoyable the reason why, there's a reason why it's called smooth jazz right um, okay so the melody starts by evoking the nine of that minor nine chord by way of an ascending triplet arpeggio okay so the first thing musically we hear is that Starts with the drum fill, ba da 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 la ba ba do ba do ba da. Okay, so immediately we're really clearly in that world of a D minor nine. 
That's one of my favorite moments of the melody. I feel like a lot of composers, it's over a G7, so you'd think they would evoke that, those notes. But no, he evokes the next chord, which is a C major 9. He's telegraphing what's about to come. He's foreshadowing it, which is, it works really well. It sets up what's what's gonna come uh, really well, and he keeps that idea going. I love this moment here. We have this already dissonant F, uh, crazy F dominant chord, and he and he also puts in a B natural there. Right. So he's not afraid to add dissonant non-chord tones to the mix well, too. It's that great thing of the melody ignoring the harmony, ignoring and the harmony, keeping a little bit more simple diatonic approach. So it's almost. a great balance, right? There's plenty of times when it's very strictly based on the harmony arpeggioing a certain chord. There are times when he's scalar moving very freely. Mm -hmm. um, so we have that. One of the boldest moments of the whole tune because what we have right here, guys, we have a B flat major nine, okay? Clearly that has an A natural in it, right? But the melody at this time goes, okay, so we have an A flat, hitting up against an A natural. Why does he do that? Because we're about to hear that chord. It's almost like the melody is ahead of everything yeah. else. And hey guys, this is where I'm going. And the chords are always one right, step behind. Right. And anticipation's a big part of playing jazz. It yeah. is a big part of playing jazz. And what's really cool about this moment in the melody is he doesn't stick around on that A flat. A lot of other composers would do. He doesn't do that. He goes. He goes down to a G, which is not part of the chord at all. And so, right. again, it's already a dissonant moment, but he's making it even more dissonant because stepwise, it's just a passing tone. It's right. leading really smoothly to that new one chord. And also, the tempo of the song, yeah. do guys so fast, well, you don't even notice And the melody is so it. strong, you would revolt if it didn't hit that note. Right. Absolutely. Like that Finally, we end with that six to the five resolution that is happening in octaves from the comping and the melody leading us to our B section. I'm gonna very briefly just blow through the melody here so you guys can kind of hear how gorgeous this melody is here. Another thing that the melody is now doing, which we didn't discuss, is that it's now evoking this A6 sound, which descends down to the raised fifth, giving us our augmented. And so it's just another colorful little tasty right. moment at the very end. And one of the cool things about this final chord, this A augmented chord, is it kind of sounds like it's setting up a new one of D minor, which, hey, that is the next chord we get when it loops but it's not in D minor because a second later we're setting up C major, which we're clearly in. Right. So it's great because it kind of works and it kind of doesn't work. <laughs> it's loop-based video game music. It's right. not a full resolution that feels like you can end the song, but it's good enough for the loop and it makes it really challenging when you actually, and we've noticed this, and as a band try to make an ending to a song that should not really ever have an ending. It's very right. difficult. There's almost an odd, like a auditory illusion or something because right at the moment of impact it seems like oh yeah we've f like smoothly modulated to d minor but no this is actually a <laughs> two five one of yeah of c major which is um 
yeah, a little bit more of a stretch, but it's also mm-hmm. what's nice about that augmented chord and the melody emphasizing the augmented note is it's then setting up that half step motion below, which is like where the melody will land. Yeah, after right, absolutely. It's so nice. So we have right. from the augmented note to the minor nine. Yeah, I mean, I think that what's so interesting about this composition is that so much of it is about the, you use that word smooth a lot, but I think it's because the voice leading influences the melody. The mm-hmm. voice leading influences the voicing of the right hand. It influences the voicing of the bass. And another thing, to, I think a big influence of this song uh, is, is, we didn't mention that, it's swung, which is sort yes. of self-evident, but the way that retro VGM and chip music was swung was by setting up a triplet based groove almost that's making at the heart it of as though tune. it's in 6-8 and a cool thing about this and I think something that again was born out of necessity that triplet figuration that's so central to the melody I think a big part of that is because the grid that this was composed on was a triplet yeah. based grid it's an intuitive decision I yeah. think a lot of the decisions that Mitsuyoshi made for this tune may not have been a hundred percent thought out or oh, this is what I'm going to do here. Right. I think some of them were instinctual, but they were the right decisions. And responding to the every, tools. Yes. Every single element of this tune is working right. to add smoothness and add pleasure to the experience. And sometimes it's this juxtaposition where you have something really difficult and sometimes dissonant, but it's blowing at you so fast that it, you're just left with this wondrous experience. Well, I also feel like that once it gets to the when it hits the B flat and A flat and everything, yeah. Yeah. that part actually is the part of the whole experience that feels the most like French to me. And mm-hmm. I feel like he's actually evoking f- older French jazz music of maybe the 20s and 30s kind of a the sound. The thing about this or tune... Or like an accordion or concert yeah. tune on the street If you broke this tune down uh, and played it with a, like a, a jazz trio in a really slow ballad-esque way, I think it would be a little bit more emotional and dissonant than people might be expecting. But when it's going at you really fast with a dancey drum kit behind it in a silly synth bass, I mean, right. it's just the coolest mixture. Well, and also yeah, the comping, it? the one thing that's, I think, very unique about it from a jazz perspective is the comping is so predictable that you... It's so active that like an actual keyboardist would probably do something a little more subtle but again the illusion of video game music is that things need to represent more than one thing at the same time so the baseline while being a baseline it's also a much more active element of the rhythm section absolutely The, the comping right hand in addition to characterizing the harmony and being like a keyboard part is also needs to take the role of um, so much more. Well, and I think that comping rhythm is also scoring the kind of game it is. And you're inside this car. You actually, I think, crave something more mechanical, more driving and sort of circular. And the momentum is endless on this tune. Well, guys, thanks for indulging me. I really enjoyed breaking down one of my favorites, France from Outrunners. That was just great. Thanks so much, Carl, for all your work. That really was fun. You're very welcome. Well, Will, you're in the hot seat now. Yeah. So the one that I'm going to be talking about is one that's, I'm sure, classic to all of us. It's one that I grew up with, but it's a piece of music that I think has a lot more going on under the hood than we might first realize. This is Inside the Castle Walls from Super Mario 64. Let's take a listen to the track.
Such a beautiful and uh, inspiring composition. I had such a great time breaking this down this past week, and Marty and I were actually talking a lot about it because this is one that originally um, we were kind of going back and forth uh, between (laughs) which one of us was going to do which composition because there's so much great stuff to cover. Uh, But I've always loved and appreciated this piece of music, but it's so fun kind of really digging into it. You always notice so many more details under the hood when you take a closer look and you also encounter so many moments where you think it's one way and then when you actually look at it uh it's quite different and i think that phenomenon happens a lot of the time with uh, a melodic composer like koji kondo who's able to write music that's so easy to listen to like carl was saying with france that uh it's really important that this is a piece of music that doesn't necessarily uh, challenge you in a way that's pulling you out of the experience. Well, especially because you hear it so often. It's the right. piece of music you hear most often in the game by far. So I, the first point. thing that I want to talk about, rather than breaking into the melody or the harmony, is almost... Uh, Kondo-san's mindset around the composition. Mm. And I think, uh, you know, this is the first time we see the inside of Princess Peach's castle. And it's really, honestly, the first time since the original Super Mario Brothers that a piece of music is almost dedicated to her specifically. I love um, that The original idea. would be the... Kind and of a I similar like, world, yeah, right? We're going to find lots of moments where that piece of music, I think, actually plays legitimate um, influence into this composition. But one thing that we'll notice from looking at that one is the way that he uses chromaticism. Mm. Um, it, to evoke sort of a sophisticated, almost classical feeling. What is so wonderful about the Inside the Castle Walls theme, though, is even though it uses... Yeah. That same type of chromatic movement that we would have on the NES theme, um, it also carries the spirit of kind of the plucky, fun, old vaudeville songwriting American music that's such a vibrant part of Mario's personality. Yeah, and right. uh, we hear this done with sort of the sound of a string orchestra. And so I think that always fools us into thinking that this is such a stately piece of classical music. Yet the thing that I've been really thinking about and kind of struggling with is just how syncopated these rhythms are you know if you put yeah. a groove behind it dump they're always hitting off beats mm-hmm. it's a type of rhythmic movement that you wouldn't probably get um in a classical composer syncopation was not super common in the era that i feel like kondo is evoking yet that but he type loves of syncopation, it so much yeah it's so classic to mario so the first thing is Uh, When we look at the piece of music harmonically, especially for this first section, it actually has a pretty slow harmonic rhythm, meaning that the overall harmony only changes once every two measures. So essentially, um, there's a lot more detail under the hood, but essentially we have C major starting off, and then we have this sort of version of a G7, and there's a lot more detail there. And then we have an A minor. Overall, it's sort of a slow harmonic rhythm. But then we go to this really fascinating D7 chord. And functionally, what's interesting about this is D is not diatonic to the key of C major that we're in. This is actually the same chord that starts off the original overworld. 
Right. Except in that case, it's using its more functional um, variation where it's going from D7 to G to C. Like a different type but of 251. in this piece of music, we sort of cadence on that D7 chord. Um, then we have mm. this really interesting ending. Kind of recontextualizing yeah. the D7 yeah. sound. It's but then, like a familiar character. Yeah, yeah, rather than going to a G chord, like a lot of composers would probably go... Something like that. <laughs> yeah. To, so that you have that um, that that feeling of uh, we have a cadence on the five chord to return to the one. Um, and there's a, there's a phrase called ante- antecedent in consequent... Uh, phrasing yeah. in classical music uh, so often a simple tune will work that way that the first half of the melody ends on a five and the second half ends on a one to have a full resolution this is sort of a, a variation of that but I think one of the things that Kondo uses to make this feel classical is actually the fact that we go from this D7 right back yeah. to C it has the feeling of almost uh, this in like sonata form in an exposition how you'll get to the end of a phrase and say set up and tonicize a new key, but then there's a repeat sign. Yeah, and then you exactly. just go back to the earlier bar. It has that feeling. Wow. So I mentioned that was the overall harmony, but the way this piece of music is composed, we can't really look at the <laughs> elements without examining all of them together. So we have this melody which is harmonized in parallel thirds for the most part. For the most part, that is outlining the C major triad. And then you have which here is outlining that G7 and then so it's a melody of sequence. It's taking that really interesting original nugget though Mm-hmm. This is the great thing about Kondo Song. That's a very strange <laughs> sequence of notes. Sure. Yeah. But yet he justifies it by how comfortably it follows down through that sequence. And the way this is harmonized is in thirds and then fourths, keeping that series of cycling through yeah. the triad. Absolutely. that sort of thing but the really interesting thing about this is what this sort of cello line is doing it's very chromatic and not in a way that evokes the sort of classicism we were talking about but almost a more unsettling to me it's almost like a barbershop kind of harmony yeah It's very unsettling, and to me, it, it captures, sounds American to me. Yeah, it, it captures <laughs> that feeling of like the princess isn't home, and it's the the melody is happy, but there's something unsettling about right. it. There's too. definitely tension to right. this harmonization. So yeah, we have yum, and the way that that sort of each moment of the melody implies a different kind of harmonization this type of uh, chromatic parallel writing is something that you see in a lot of jazz music but again in this mm. function uh, it's all There's about some the kind of precedent in, in late uh, romantic orchestral music especially right. I mean, some of those motions some of, of the diminished like quasi diminished uh, sure. movement 
But yeah, it's like it, it's what we love about Kondosan and Mario music, where it's sort of like uh, it's picking America and choosing meets from different eras. Meets yeah. Japan, right? It's beautiful. So this second moment, uh, it starts on this diminished chord. So if we were C. The next thing we hear is the sound of not a five chord, but a diminished chord with sure. the root. But then again, we have that same type of movement, which this to me sounds very barbershopping. Yeah. Or that's what's sort of implied, but. <laughs> and then. that time we get almost the implication of like a half diminished chord there yeah. but again he's not spelling these things out fully now the one last element that i have to mention about this are those wonderful ascending pizzicato arpeggios um which it, it's one of the things that gives the piece such a rich sophisticated sound yeah um of almost sounding like a string quartet and as if we were jumping from you know cello viola second violin first violin really quickly each right. of them doing that dovetailing sound uh the way Way that we perceive it is almost like <laughs> but what actually happens is the second that the melody lands on the top note we have the first note of the arpeggio sure and that first arpeggio contains no thirds it's just roots and fifths all mm. very open and spaced out but meant to characterize that ascending nature and then the second one that we get it's almost the opposite. It's just roots and thirds. <laughs> and I think the reason why Kondosan chose these is if you think of each of these individual notes as a different player, like a different individual player, yeah. it's more about smooth voice leading for their individual parts. Someone right. moves down a half step or jumps up a fourth. Right. It's that kind of idea. So the second arpeggio, da da da. And then when we go to the A minor chord, it's root, root, fifth, root, third, mm. fifth. So the A, the last chord is when we finally get a more traditional triad, and it also sets up where the melody goes. Yeah. And then this last phrase is so interesting. It's, Doesn't it's, that sound like Scott Joplin to you, that part? It always <laughs> yeah, did definitely. to me. Because you have the melody keeps this third idea and takes it through a really busy series of notes. <laughs> you know, that kind of idea, but... <laughs> And so the way that this works is we have our bass sort of cello line starting on the third of D and hitting that sort of dotted rhythm a sync so that they land together in a syncopated way. Mm. This last is just that open sound, no thirds, kind of like we heard from his arpeggio. Right. And faintly, you can actually hear the sound of a D down the octave. Oh. One interesting thing about this piece of music is there's a lot of moments where at an arrival of a chord, a new voice will enter, oftentimes in the bass frequency. It's one of the things that was giving Marty and I some trouble because you're trying to follow all the parts, and yet it, yeah. all oh. of a sudden there's a moment where a new yeah. voice pops in for one moment. So that's kind of an interesting thing. What do you think You're is the what do you think that. is the purpose maybe of that of why he did that? Um, well, I think here he really wants to characterize that open sound. It's not 
It's, yeah. I think part of it is because going from D7 to C is a little strange, but we don't mm. really go that. We go from almost like this dyad of D and A back to starting in our original register too. That's the other yeah. thing is we ended in this low cacophonous range and then we just go back to this innocent. Sure. Yeah, and I see what you're saying. He does that a lot. Um, in the piece where every time it returns to that, it's almost kind of innocently creeping back in. It pokes its little head. So we have the same exact. You know, it kind of reminds me of the bunny. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We have the same exact thing. You know, it goes through that whole phrase, but then instead of doing its move to D7 um, in... It it goes it uses D seven in now a more functional way, mm. da, da, da. and it actually we have that dyad again. And what's interesting about that landing is we have the third doubled, which oh. is something that Kondo doesn't do a lot. If we notice, he rarely often likes to double the third. He he's known for sort of big, spacious voicings, um, but that kind of sound of doubling a third is not something he likes as much. Mm -hmm, he right. tends to do it if it's a leading tone. Um, for instance, the end of the phrase. Yeah. And it's same with like the underwater theme has yeah. that kind of at the very end. Uh, and in this case, I think the reason why he's doubling the third is because this D, that F sharp in the D, functions as a leading tone. That's true. To the five chord, then back to the one. So, and then again doubling the leading tone, and then a classic condo resolution. <laughs> Which we might recognize Jazzy. from yeah. that half step from above, yeah. or, or even the athletic theme. Yep. You know, he yeah. loves that kind of half step resolution. But what's interesting, that's how I remembered the piece where we have this sus4 resolving down and then the bass going like that but there's actually this is another moment when a, a new bass note enters in if this is the cello this is like the viola or violin sure this is the top violin at the moment of this interesting sort of d flat major seven mm -hmm. chord uh, that's what's implied mm -hmm. we actually get an f in the bass which doubles that uh, suspension but rather than going down to the third jumps down to the c sure. so it's which oh. sounds a little strange on piano but if you listen right. to what he does that's actually how he resolves it hmm. this is the first point in the piece that the mario odyssey that wonderful arrangement for real strings this is the first yeah. point that they change in that arrangement yeah everything else is note for note exactly the way it is in this version mm -hmm. In that version, they do go. They double. Part of it is in the real world, down. the acoustics of <laughs> double basses down there. Right. They just have such strong overtones. Um, you wouldn't really be able to negotiate. You're them. saying yeah, that it's somewhat like different the... than N64 samples. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but guys. it's amazing because it, it, the low sample Kondo uses. Um, it's kind of this. Uh, string wide pitch yeah. sample so it's not always super like impactful in the low exactly. register right. which is part of why that works and it, mm -hmm. it does have such striking overtones because mm -hmm. one thing what Marty and I were looking at was at this part it almost sounds like this it sounds like this is the chord that you're hearing there because an overtone from the bass pits um, 
which is hitting a D at that moment, I think. Um, we're getting that sort of second overtone there. Um, and that's sometimes that influences the harmony where you feel like you're getting more extended <laughs> yeah. chords than you really are. Anyways, after we have that have that sort of classic resolution then the melody continues but now with almost we could imagine a cello or viola carrying mm -hmm. over the melody and we just get a two voice moment here and what's interesting you might recognize yes. that from callback yeah he's evoking his older melody for the princess but uh, here's like what he'll do a couple years later in the prologue of ocarina of time yeah yes that and recontextualizing yes. it and developing it. Yeah. yeah. And so with the bass here, we get the leading tone. Yeah. And moving down to the third mm -hmm. with the melody. But then what's great about this, it's again, the balancing of the sort of classical expectations and the slightly more syncopated Broadway style rhythms. The, the, the baseline here is really fascinating because I think what I was remembering it as before I went back to it was something like this. Close. But it's actually a lot more syncopated than that, and it breaks its pattern constantly, which is something Kondo-san does a lot. There's not a lot of copy and pasting. <laughs> yes. It's syncopated there. And if you notice, the chord that we have voiced here is very open. It's almost a callback to the way that he voiced chords on the yeah. NES, these very spacious, sparse voicing, roots, mm -hmm. thirds, fifth, not much else there. And then this melody that, again, is outlining a C major triad. The progression that we have here is sort of C, an inversion of C, yep. to the four chord F, and then D minor. Feels so good. To G7, and then down to my favorite moment, which is the secondary dominant, yeah. a sort of E7 chord, yeah. or an E major chord, which then, again, is an inversion over the third and then a minor love that and then we get back to that d7 chord and then it's sort of a d minor seven an inversion of c and then d minor so five one Just so what's masterful. interesting is both the a section and b section are grounded in starting with the tonic chord so often a section b section music we move to either the dominant for the b section or we mm -hmm. move to the subdominant the four chord but Kondosan almost has it's like the raiders march or something where there are like two principal yeah, ideas exactly. this could be the principal melody um especially since it evokes totally. that i think it conveys the princess more to yeah. me the a section conveys the castle maybe more. well and it does something that classical music does which is you have your more lyrical theme second and the more right. rhythmic theme first so sure. this one is a little bit more straightforward and this section doesn't have the same level of chromatic scrutiny um, but it's a lot of that you know uh, harmonized in six there's a lot more slow moving this is where all the elements become decoupled where they were so together yeah. rhythmically in parallel and everything now things start to have more staggered entrances This is my favorite point here. We, <laughs> we're going to get a cross-relation. Yeah. And so what happens there, I told you how we're implying this E chord. Yep. We have a G sharp, which is the raised third in E against 
a G natural in the melody, mm-hmm. which is kind of like what you're talking about in France. Yeah. The melody is acting almost ignorant to the chord change. Well, and also like in France, it's the the melody is so satisfying there. You don't really want it exactly right. Exactly, but it, it adds for this interesting moment of tension. Mm-hmm. God, that's what beautiful. I find sort interesting of a favorite there. So- sound among a lot of Japanese composers, right? And it's something Koji Kondo tends to do. Like if you think Yoshi's Island. Like he's okay with cross relations and interesting rubs. And even earlier we heard, um, where you have that sort of sound. Um, he's okay with cross relations, but what's interesting here is I think a lot of composers wouldn't have the restraint that he does. They might do something like, yeah, where you make this type of chord out of it. Uh, oftentimes, but you'd sort of break the that. spell for whatever yeah. genre. Well, and how sweet and Mario-y this, this is, you know, that yeah. it's much yeah. more about simple triadic harmony, even though we have these moments. Those are moments that are so easily glossed over by people, especially right. someone who might want well, to dismiss. And the other thing that I love about this is, like I said, we have the bass is lined up. It's still lined up, but then now the bass doesn't move up to the third here. Sure. Now yeah. it's starting to decouple. And then now it's fully decoupled. Sure. That helps the cross relation a lot. Yeah, it right. does. Yeah. That you have it out. staggered entrances. When, when we land on that D chord, it's the third is what's in the bass. And what I think a lot of composers would probably do here would be... Yeah. But Kondo-san doesn't do that. He takes us from this D chord to this D minor chord. Um, and it's interesting because the melody hits that A natural both times instead of going to like... Sure. Which would be sort of the maybe the more expected thing to but have also that chromatic would have been maybe motion more, down. More of a pastiche. Yeah, it, it makes it a little bit less straightforward and innocent, which is, again, it's these moments of restraint that I think his real artistry shines through. Sure. And then this is yeah. another amazing moment. So this is another uh, condo kind of device, harmonized fourths. Yeah. What a lot of composers might do here is something like this. Sure. Taking sort of an inversion of the triad down the scale. But Kondo-san, interestingly, or doing it in sixths, that I feel like that's what he would have done back on the NES days. <laughs> but he's sure. in a, a different headspace here. And it's interesting because that parallel fourth sticks out. It makes these feel much more like a unit, having that parallel perfect right. interval. Yeah. But we actually get more interesting notes of the chord because here we get the third and seventh of the D minor. And then we get this interesting, it turns the G chord into like a G6 chord. And then we also get the ninth and fifth there. So it, it's. I think he's 
about pulling out harmonic color, but it's another thing that takes it out of the sort of conventional classical headspace. Um, and it actually reminds me of uh, a moment in... Sure. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. From New Super Mario Brothers, he uses that same idea of parallel fourths to yeah. accent slightly more surprising and more old timey colors. Um, well, and with it, the it harmony. Seems, yeah, it's, accent I think is the word for it because it seems to be a method that he can use to really bring that phrase to the foreground. Right. Because um, at a certain point, uh, you maybe accept the harmony of thirds and sixths right uh, it's being so constant yeah. and smooth so that's like this moment of surprise yeah, yeah and great. while the melody goes uh the harmony does this it's sort of like the alto line so together we do get this moment of the sixth that collapses It's almost like mm. it was anticipating for, mm. but the melody stays on that G. Right. And then we have another two, five, Very one. elegant. Again, repetition. But the second time through, you'll notice there's a low brass instrument, kind of like a trombone line. This is something that I was also surprised to see kept in the Mario Odyssey arrangement mm -hmm. because it it evokes these really low thirds in kind of a close proximity, much lower than tend to be conventionally sonorous. Yeah. But I think it's because the line that Kondo hears in his head is very specific. That low brass isn't just adding to the harmony. It's its own intrinsic counter melody. But that means that when we finally get to the resolution... that resolves is we actually have the thirds in this bass register right and uh while the we actually have a really interesting dissonance here of this a against the g and b doesn't then, last long but it's also something that actually works with these kinds of uh these kinds of samples that in terms of physical acoustics really just don't work in the mm -hmm. real world. Right. Kind of and they have illusion. such different timbres yeah. that it sort of has that illusion of your brain where something that sounds muddy on a piano can sound better with different arrangements. But what's interesting, we have the same rhythm, bump, 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 bump. Yeah. But rather than being, it's just stays on the C and the only notes we have here are C, the octave above, the third and another C. So no fifths here. And then when we go to this suspension, the only notes here are C and F and then C and E. Sure. This is the other moment that they did change in the Mario Odyssey arrangement. They make both cadences yeah. have the half step resolution. Yep. But it's actually something I really love. And it's something Kondo-san does a lot where at the first, the end of the first half of a loop will be much more dissonant. Like, right like he does in the uh, Super Mario world. Yep, the up, map. Up, yeah. Up, yeah, exactly. And then the, the second one is just... 
It's much mm-hmm. more simple. Here he does the same thing, the ending of the loop. And then the way we simply get back in is another two voice moment. But then this low B that was meant to set up here just, <laughs> just disappears. disappears. Yeah. Very it's back to that sort of yep. sneaking back into you with the loop. Well, and yeah, I mean, he's really, among other things, a master of the loop arts. Yeah. And yeah. as you were talking about some of the more surprising harmonic moments, I kind of suspected that there's some loop wisdom in a lot of that. Like, say, ending on that unresolved D7 chord. Right. Um, he probably rightly senses that too many perfect resolutions in a short looped piece of music yeah. are going to wear on you. Right. Um, and even what, what you just played now there, it's so kind of shocking. It like, it takes your breath away actually yeah. for a second. And if you can have that reaction, when you come back to the top of the yeah. loop, boy, you're, he's got loop chops. <laughs> you're kind of in wonderland. <laughs> he's right. got loop chops for days. Yeah. So, I mean, that's kind of a, an overview of the entire composition uh, for a single loop, but there's so much versatility in all the yeah. different sections, the rhythmic, the lyrical, uh, that I think it keeps your interest. And it's just so melodically It's a strong. deep piece of music. There's yeah. a lot to di- to dig in and enjoy with that one. Yeah, and it, I think there's so many principles of Kondo's writing, which is that the mixture of simplicity and complexity and that razor's edge that he walks, his restraint is like no other composer I can yeah. think of for when he chooses to... Mm. Um, venture into unsuspecting chromatic territory and when he restrains himself it's the thing that gives his thumbprint its unique quality well and in the context of that soundtrack uh, inside the castle walls is i think extremely special because it's really the one piece of music that represents mario as we already knew him um most of the soundtrack of Mario 64 is sort of infamous for breaking from tradition yeah. uh, stylistically and uh, as far as the character of Mario and what we expect from Koji Kondo. We had never heard anything like Jolly Roger Bay, right? right? Um, and I love that when we're in the heart of the castle, like you said, Carl, the place we're going to keep coming back to, um, we have the musical comfort personality of the Mario we know and love. Right. Well, uh, I think that about wraps up Inside the Castle Walls. Marty, what are you going to be sharing with us? I'm really excited to be sharing, honestly, one of my favorite pieces of video game music ever. Hmm. Uh, This is Ordon Village, composed by the great Toru Minigishi for The Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess. Hmm. Let's take a listen. Thank you. 
Yeah, I'm not sure if this is a common take, but uh, as I said, for me, Ordon Village is as classic as video game music can get. It's amazing. And I have such fond memories of playing Twilight Princess and being sort of stunned that uh, what felt like such a new point in history at that time, a that classic there was still Zelda such a theme. classic yeah. right. v- uh, piece of video game music. A Koji Kondo win, you know, right. classic village theme. And I'm hoping today that I can look at Ordon Village um, with really sort of a broad view compared to France and inside the castle walls. Um, in some ways, you could maybe almost look at Ordon Village as a simpler form of musical expression right that hopefully will give us the opportunity to talk about some really deep musical concepts and so i really want to view ordon village in terms of artistic values and in terms of beauty and what is it that we mean by beauty and i don't just mean in music but i mean the concept itself Hmm. Uh, whether we're looking at a scene in nature that we find beautiful or at a romantic partner that we find beautiful or listening to a piece of music, is there something similar in all of those things? Um, so that's what I'm going to attempt to sort of persuade us uh, towards today. Um, and so these artistic values I'm going to look at in terms of three main sort of pillars. And the primary one is something we've already talked about today. And this is something that permeates all of what seems to move us in art and in life, and that's the concept of contrast. So as we see a beautiful sun in the sky, it's the contrast of that color of the sun to the color of the sky, which Mm -hmm. if you actually study color science, they're perfect complements to each other. Mm -hmm. And it's the contrast of inhaling, exhaling, And I also like thinking of the rose. The rose has a lot of conceptual contrast baked into it, particularly between the petals and the thorns. It's a contrast of texture, but for us humans, it ends up being a a contrast of deep meaning. Right. Um, And we end up there's almost an unlimited amount of analysis, feeling, thinking that we can do about that contrast. Mm. And most of the great music that we love is just going to be filled with these yin and yang contrasts. Mm. And Ordon Village is that way. Wherever you look, you're going to uncover beautiful contrasts. First, I'd like to take a look at the melody itself. And I would say globally, the biggest contrast that we might perceive in this piece is in two phenomena. One is the melody and one we might call the accompaniment. Uh, The melody, which you may remember, is... This is how it opens. And even that phrase by itself is already full of contrast. The rhythm, da, 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 Sure. This dotted rhythm, which we find these sort of asymmetrical rhythms in a lot of the great melodies. There's something about that contrast of rhythm that keeps us going, that keeps us pushing forward. Um, We also have a contrast uh, intervallically, the space between notes. We open with a rather large leap and then these small moves. Hmm. And then followed by another weep. Hmm. 
This is a good opportunity to talk about phrasing, not in Ordon Village exclusively, but in music altogether. Um, I think the term phrase or phrasing can sometimes be a little bit cryptic if you're just coming into music. Right. What I'm talking about here is almost the kind of breath and punctuation as though the phrase isn't merely a sequence of notes, but almost a sentence that's expressing an idea. Mm-hmm. And one way that we this happens in music very often is about where, uh, where the phrase stops, where that breath takes place. And actually, this being conscious of this breath is how we can transform a mere idea into a statement, into a phrase, into a melody. So let's say we were just taking something at random... Um, So let's say that's our idea. Now, if we were to repeat it, we could repeat it forever. But if, if on the, the moment that we repeat it, we take a breath before we close the phrase, something really interesting happens. That now... St- hits hmm. us like it's a statement. It hits no, it's us like tune. it's saying something. And we could actually progress with that if we wanted to. Yeah. Right. Sure. Um, and this, we experienced this you just with wrote Ordon, an Alan Menken song. <laughs> we experienced this with Ordon Village as far as how the melody progresses. So if we have a rhythm, da, 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 da. Imagine sure. that repeating forever. But instead of repeating forever, we begin to repeat and then we breathe. Yeah. Breathe. It's a statement now. <laughs> right. Yeah. And now what we do with that statement, Will mentioned earlier a melody of sequence, something we've talked about before. And uh, it's all over music that we love. Yeah. Basically taking this idea we're talking about and moving it scale-wise in some fashion, mm-hmm. which is what we do with Ordon Village. And we bring this entire statement up a step mm-hmm. and trying to stay diatonic to our key. And I'll talk about that very beautiful, colorful note mm-hmm. in a moment. Um, getting back to the concept of contrast... There's some really phenomenal contrast in the piece between these two phenomena that I talked about, the melody and what we call the accompaniment. So this melody that I've been playing isn't cast in a uh, piano in the actual piece, but this sort of wood flute, yeah. almost like a shakuhachi or something. And it's very rustic and it's playing these long sustained rhythms, hardly ever breathing. And what accompanies it, uh, is so beautifully contrasted with that. It's these very short sounding instruments. And I also love how Torminigishi has produced this. Um, these elements are almost hard panned. So there's these pizzicato samples. And they're all the way over to the left, practically. <laughs> there's a little bit of reverb crossing in both channels. And then there is this uh, very wood wooden marimba sound that's on the right channel. And it's emphasizing certain moments of, uh, that, uh, of that developing line here. 
So the marimba strikes that, and then over the next chord. Yeah. So if you listen out for it now, you're also going to hear, even in just the accompaniment alone, this beautiful asymmetric contrast mm. that keeps us going. But once the melody is happening, um, we have this lovely pairing of these short, just little Staccato. bubbles of sound mm -hmm. with these long spread out um, notes in the wood flute. Uh, and then contrast. also as far as the instruments themselves, there's something almost a little sophisticated about uh, our relationship with pizzicato strings, I think. So, there's also in this piece, there's so much space, isn't there, Marty? I, so I can't space. imagine a piece that has more space than this and yet uses it well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so there's almost those breaths, as you mentioned it. There are plenty places for that, both in the more accompanimental rhythmic motif and in the melody there's there's places for that kind of space whether it the space is during sustain right. or whether it's kind of taking a breath boom 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 boom, boom and you or hear the, the decay mix. of it <laughs> yeah out. absolutely well and there's a particular genius to toro minigishi um in how he supports this melody and with any of the pieces we're looking at today we don't know enough about the making of them to tell you which element came first mm -hmm. but i think we're also all three of us trying to argue that isn't necessarily all that important um because when we look at a great piece of music it works at every level yeah. in right. which you can view it and in every order that you can you can view it but what's great is this melody feels very classic almost like um, old Auld Lang Syne or something. Yeah. Sure. Um, mm -hmm. But interesting that the accompaniment, there's a little bit, uh, there's something funkier going on yeah, than it's you would groovy. expect. Yeah, yeah exactly. Because we have. So yeah. what ends up happening is he, uh, he'll drop the downbeat yeah. every second measure once the melody kicks in. So you have... It's so groovy. And Tormenegishi actually is a drummer, and he's bringing that amazing sense of time and pocket to this piece of music that isn't really going to... It's not going to feature a drum kit. It's not going to turn into some breakbeat or anything like that. But again, in terms of contrast, it's it's giving us so much more to really reflect on and so much mm -hmm. more to push against with this very almost stately classic. Well, it's like that, what we were talking about with the inside the castle walls, where it's like, there's a bit more syncopation under the hood than you might expect from the type of pastiche that they're going yeah, for. Absolutely. I mean, John Williams does that all the time where it'll be a kind of, you'd think a pastiche to a romantic classical march, yet there's so much kind of like groovy percussion, syncopation, really right. surprising stabs rhythmically yeah. that are kind of subvert your expectations. Yeah, absolutely. The next pillar that I want to talk about in terms of these like core artistic values and you know, I'm sure we could each end up categorizing and slicing up that pie mm -hmm, differently. Mm -hmm. But at, uh, at least for my purposes today, I'm going to look at the concept of uh, vibrance. And really in Ordon Village, it's an opportunity to talk about the vibrance of the third degree. And yeah. we've been talking about the third degree and thirds a lot today and throughout the history of the podcast, right? <laughs> um, if you're again, new to some of these concepts and wondering why is this brought up so much? What's so special here? Well, you may be aware of what we call the tonic or basically it's our 
one, our first degree of the scale. And uh, thankfully, all three pieces today at least start implying by implying the key of C major. Yeah, France some of them don't stick around else. for a while. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So in the key of C major, our tonic would be C. And the that's considered the absolute most stable note in music. If we perceive that we're in the key of C, mm -hmm. um, then this is as stable as we can get. You've also likely heard of the fifth degree. And this is just about as <laughs> this is sort of the the next most stable tone here. And there's something yeah. interesting when we hear this. And Will talked about this in Inside the Castle Walls. There was a moment of just this bare open fifth. In that case, it was a D and A. When we hear this, there's this sense of timelessness that you can imagine really have our bearings and actually a lot of new age music you might hear if you're getting a massage you're going to hear the sound of this root and fifth it's so open again and again and a lot of indian classical music the bed that's underneath the soloing by the sitar yeah, the drone or the harmonium or the vena yeah. is going to be this drone of root and fifth so if this is our stillness the third is like a spark yeah Right. Where before what we were hearing was sound, now it's almost like the music is speaking something. Yes. Right. right. And you can't overstate the power of this third degree. And this this spark has impact even if it's embedded in these little chord moments. Right. So at the very opening of our piece, we maybe don't perceive a melody yet per se, but we're getting all these little sparkles mm -hmm. in that arpeggio. Yeah. There's a sparkle. Yep. There's a minor sparkle. Yep. Right. And that, just a dabble, do ya? Right. And that concept, uh, that's, I'm trying to go s some way to kind of explain what it is we're feeling as a piece of music is sort of moving through us. Hmm. But Ordon Village um, has this sort of pure uh, yearning towards the beauty of this third. Mm -hmm. And as the melody progresses, it will seek to find these thirds wherever they may be. And this is the moment where the music just feels so perfect. Yeah. Uh, played plenty of times now, this opening phrase. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the phrase, this final leap is a leap from third to third. Third, third. Third of mm -hmm. our first chord, C. Yep. Third of our second chord, F. And then... Third. And then now as the piece develops and the melody, we perceive the melody to be moving faster because the, yeah. the rhythmic pattern repeats quicker. Mm -hmm. We move from third, third, seek the third again. Yep. And there's something so inevitable about that. Yeah. Um, but what I would argue is the third is sort of some of the beauty that we're talking about. Again, it's that vibrance. In the same way that this is stable, we just accept it. Yeah. Right. This is beautiful. <laughs> we just accept it. And so there's a way to which that uh, developing section... Um, Well, it's almost the height of beauty, and we're moving harmonically through that circle of fifths that Carl first mentioned, and we actually 
talked about in all three of these well, pieces. I think emotion in general, I mean, the third and, and the context of, of third is, is the foundation of so much of our emotional response in music. Well, and also the much of what Marty's saying can be seen both in the melody and in the accompaniment. If you look at the yeah, way that absolutely. arpeggio is written, and I, I touched on this earlier, why it was so strange for Koji to have those low third pairs. Right. Uh, composers tend to have to be very sensitive about the third because it implies so much detail. Yeah. It's also yeah, uh, the absolutely. relationship it's of powerful. the third. You got to be careful with is it. very close together, but so many arpeggios or voicings of chords tend to be very open in the right. low register and very close in the top register. And that's exactly what that yum, boom, 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 boom. You have all the clustered notes together at the top and you have the more spaced out roots and fifths at the bottom. Yeah, It's absolutely. almost like branches of a and, tree I mean, The third is so out. powerful that when it does move to the bass, we really perceive an entirely new chord. Mm -hmm. So if this is our C major and now it moves that E, which is our third, moves to the bass. So right. different. We can intellectually understand that to contain the same notes. But it but has more direction. Yeah, emotionally, it feels different. And as you learn in theory and composition, we often need to handle that type of chord with a lot of with a lot care. of care. So we've been talking about contrast, we've been talking about vibrance. I'd also like to talk about um, what I'm naming this third pillar, which is detail. And thinking of detail as double meaning. I mean all the minutia, but I also mean detail like a job, like a duty that you're posted to. I'm right. on this detail. Mm -hmm. um, and I like to look at it that way because it, much like the phrase God is in the detail or devil, the devil is in the details, um, not handling these details with care, uh, I think also keeps you a step or two away from that, that beauty that we're talking mm, about. For sure. And one of my favorite moments of detail in the melody of Ordon Village um, happens as our melody moves sequentially up. And I said I would get back to this moment. referring to this lower chromatic neighbor mm -hmm. so in the key of c major we contain uh all the white notes on the piano so we're not using any what we call accidentals but the melody here clearly plays this accident accidental And if you're like me, when that moment happened for the very first time, you just fell a little bit more in love yeah. hmm. with this piece. It's luxurious. This is something that um, our, the Japanese composers we look up to embrace in so much of their writing that for whatever reason in the West, um, this kind of lower chromatic neighbor in a melody has really sort of fallen out of fashion. And right. I think it probably has something to do with our obsession in the West over coolness and mm -hmm. style you know our our quote-unquote pop music music used to do things like this <laughs> um that would be very surprising to hear that sort of move now because we view it as old-fashioned right but time and time again what we see from our japanese composers is they clearly don't seem to um be burdened by the same stylistic <laughs> principles that we have over here. Yeah. You might say they're much less averse to beauty. <laughs> <laughs> I think you could even say that because, um, again, this moment of detail here really gives us so much.
what also just makes it a dabble do it makes though. the sequence Again, a more a absolute sequence because it's taking right. what was diatonic yada the root to the leading tone is a half step now when we move it up rather than keeping diatonic right. th- that half step interval yeah. is what's so important about the sequence yeah it's beautiful and it's also um what we can see with this kind of chromatic detail uh, i think it flies in the face of what some of us might fear with chromatic detail which is like oh is that too old-fashioned is that too show tuney mm-hmm. i'd argue that this moment here doesn't really strike me as show tuney or old-fashioned but i would i'd prefer to say classic yeah um so that's a that's a really lovely detail that we see on the melodic side. There are plenty of beautiful details that we see in the accompaniment side. Um, Toru Minigishi uses these clusters, not so often in the pizzicato, but in that very wooden marimba sound. Yeah. And this kind of reminds me of his legendary piece of music that he composed for the GameCube startup screen. Right. You know, which has that... Uh, um, yeah, and it's right. like these, but there uh, are these clusters in pits that are like, sure. Um, and I, yeah, I just love how open he is to those more unexpected colors. So we do get some moments in the marimba um, where it's playing these clusters, uh, which Carl talked about this sort of thing in the comping on France, is playing clusters of major and minor seconds mm-hmm. at times. So really, uh, when I come back to these three pillars of contrast, which permeates wherever you go looking for (laughs) it, uh, vibrance, which I think is so alive in the way the melody yearns for that third degree, let's say, Mm. and also in terms of the uh, sonically how Toru Minigishi has produced the track. And then there's this detail, which is his attention to detail in the voice leading. Um, and it's at which, key moments, right? Right. When you examine it, it's it's quite, quite beautiful and always very um, consonant. For instance, one thing that I had misremembered is when we get into that beautiful development of the A section, I had assumed that the same climbing pattern kept going in the pits. Sure. But it actually doesn't, and I suspect it's because it would introduce this F-sharp that will be a minor ninth away from this sustained melody. Mm. So this is a moment where it's actually a pure triad that right. ascends. And then he brings mm. back some the of seventh that, that that's, interesting... That's the detail work, isn't interesting it? Yeah. Exactly. I mean, it's like that's looking at a piece by work. Chopin, you right. know, where it's like there's this really fine attention to detail. It's simple to listen to. You might assume it's more formulaic than it is, but when you look at all the notes, every single moment has that fine yeah, tooth it, exactly. Comb. And then getting back to um, sort of, I think, the primary lens with which we can view beauty and art and that which has meaning to us in our lives is um, this concept of contrast. We have this B section that beautifully contrasts the rest of the piece. And I I won't go into a lot of detail just to kind of save our time here. Um, But it's a section with this uh, 
sort of modal mixture and yeah. our arrangement greatly expands. The melody moves from this wood flute to this more English horn sounding sample. And he brings in what almost sounds like either bassoons <laughs> or French <laughs> horns. Again, a lot of these samples, depending on where you play them in the range, they start to sound like <laughs> it's whatever you want it to be. Yeah. I also, and love then eventually the melody gets doubled by Arco strings. Um, but that, um, um, Contrast of emotion, that is the saddest part so far, by by right. far, in the piece. And then we're back to C. Yeah, but I love a, how it resets. But it's a C and Lydian. Yes. Yep. And it feels worldly. Right. And, and earthy. Us... And this part feels spacey and, right. and open. And it feels like then we right. close back And then it down. does close very much like what um, Will pointed out in, um, inside the castle walls where we go from this really expanded sound to when we hit our, our loop point, mm -hmm. um, it's this really contained... It's a nice reduction. This really contained sound. I also love what you just played, Marty. That, that you, we could spend an equal amount of time analyzing the harmony of that B section because yeah. to me it's this perfect balance of... You talked about the modal mixing, right. but it's that mixed in with the functional harmony. We have a yeah, lot of absolutely. those very Zelda-esque moves where it's this sort of circle of fifths leaping from one major seventh chord to another. Right. Um, but yet the way that it balances that with the sort of pulls of functional classical harmony, I think are so interesting. It's, it comes back to Marty's point about contrast, right. the balance. And my favorite moment is actually when it resets in C major. But like you said, it's not actually C major. It's either C Lydian or it, the implication almost is that we're in like G we're or something. G and this is now the subdominant. Or the, Which is something that Koji yeah. Kondo does all the time. I mean, if you yeah. look at Zelda's lullaby, it's sort of in a Lydian mode, or you could think of it right. as starting on the four chord. Right. I think one of the things that I, I remember you telling me when you first heard this piece is it's one of those pieces of music that hits you in a way where it feels perfect. Yeah. It feels like you wouldn't change a thing about it, and you almost can't imagine it ever being composed. Didn't it just yeah. always exist in the world? Yeah, exactly. Every I mean, element of it. I is... think in some ways we can explain why Ordon Village maybe isn't more world famous or sort of like the go-to video game piece that's covered um i'm not putting this in the most flattering terms but there's it's almost easy to take for granted something that is so beautiful right that's yes. so perfect and, and, and simple in a way yeah and so i think that's another interesting concept to grapple with we might find ourselves on one day finding a sunset being the most beautiful thing on earth and on another day old hat yeah We've seen it's, it a million it's mood times. it's context um, you know what i found really interesting about today guys is the things that these three pieces had in common i was thinking about them yeah. earlier today and i was like wow what three very different pieces to break right. down but there's definitely a lot in common especially i would say contrast is maybe the name of the game today yeah mm -hmm. yeah i think i think well, so. and the fact that these are all pieces of video game music that all had to negotiate with the idea of how am i getting back to the starting point because for all the harmonic yeah. adventures that these three <laughs> composers went on seriously one in, in a more jazz seconds, idiom one seconds. in a more almost like american songbook idiom and one in this wonderful zelda almost Folk, impressionistic world music idiom yeah. they all had to for as adventurous as they get they have to effortlessly weave our 
way back to home, back to C major. And I think that is maybe the thing that is so fascinating about analyzing video game music is you don't just get an abrupt key change. You're not, okay, now we're in D major or now we're in D flat and then we stay in D flat. You always have to work your way back. Yep. And that's one of the hardest things just from a structure standpoint as a composer that all three of these composers have such ingenious ways. I think with France, as you touched on Carl, it's almost a harmonic and melodic point of having that contrary motion back to the starting point in that the start of the loop isn't on C to begin with. So it obscures it. With Inside the Castle Walls, it's more of an arrangement thing it's stripping back and having that a little bit of intentional jarring juxtaposition yeah like where did that low note go right right and i think with ordon village it's a combination of all of those elements it's like we have this brilliant harmonic sequence to get us back to see yeah yet we've also embedded this contrast between the more rhythmic arpeggio and the more lyrical B section. Well, and then in Ordon, when we get to the loop, we're ready for things to come down again because we've had this spacious, wondrous, big epic sound. So we're ready to go back down again. And again, we want to almost take a breath. Yes. Uh, Last little postscript on Ordon, um, something that it's doing with its loop that the other two pieces today don't happen to do though we have examples of this even back into the 8-bit era is that it has this intro that's not repeated and not yes. part of the loop very good point um, and what's what's i think fascinating about the intro is it's outlining this chord progression that actually doesn't take place in the song yeah Like Colors I, of the Wind. Right. I bet you're <laughs> scratching your head as I'm saying that. Cause it's like, well, what do you mean? Of course that mm-hmm. takes place in the song. And I think Toru Minigishi uncovered something it stays kind longer of genius here. On Any that composer that does later. this, which is um, if you had to describe what this piece will make you feel in two chords, obviously you're going to yeah. fall very short. <laughs> it's like a crude sketch in crayon. Yes. It's not going to have all the detail, but there's something about yeah. this progression. And I say colors of the wind because it's like yeah da 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 yeah da 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 exactly one in the sixth. There's a little bit of tragedy there, and then when you put the second degree rub in, one of the best examples of contrast emotionally with two chords that you could ever have. And also, it does something that we talked about even in our very first breakdown and analysis: how the opening fanfare of Mario. Um, in that case, seems like is, a lifetime ago, guys, <laughs> is pulling back this slingshot of tension so that on our downbeat, we can just unleash the beauty of and he does C major. And here, what I like, Toru Minigishi is almost kind of, I think, very deftly uh, holding the curtain back for this wood flute. Well, melody. and then I think one of the other things that made us so in love with this piece when we heard it is it's clear that this is a person who's following the footsteps of Koji Kondo and trying to write a piece that, that fits in that same world that has already existed and that has been yeah. brought to us by Koji Kondo. And yeah, so it fits abs- it fits absolutely. so well in that world. I mean, I was just assuming when first playing the game <laughs> that this was like my new favorite Koji Kondo piece. Uncredited, um, yeah. And then came to just really appreciate Mr. Toru Minigishi. You guys have talked plenty of times in the podcast how he seems to be experiencing this uniquely Nintendo fate where you do an amazing job, you do some of the best work anyone could imagine, and you don't necessarily then get the same scale projects. Well, Splatoon, I mean, those games are incredibly popular and beloved. And so it's for sure. It's definitely a different. It's funny when he did do other Zelda. I mean, the spirit tracks, his work on that. I mean, and to go through uh, a retrospective 
of Toru Minigishi's work for Nintendo is just an amazing highlight amazing. reel. Mm-hmm. But we have seen this kind of phenomena not only with Toru Minigishi, but Mahito Yokota. And I won't be surprised if we see it with Kubo as right. well. Well, guys, this was an absolute delight. Thank you so much for kind of bearing with us. And, and you know, this is an episode that is very, very different, a change of pace. Maybe not for everybody, but hopefully for most of you. We hope it was educational and maybe even entertaining. We enjoyed doing it. We promise it won't be another five years before we do another one. So let's <laughs> definitely do another one a lot sooner. Marty, it was so fun having you back. Yeah, thanks, guys, man. Guys, this was such an honor and pleasure. Thanks so much. What a great time. Yeah, I'm always going to think about those sort of three pillars you talked about. I that think was beautiful. a great context to put music and just artistic concepts in general. And also, into. Marty, it was a great contrast <laughs> to the way that we broke our tunes down yeah that was really great guys nice. um uh next week we're going to have a bonus episode uh me and carlos will be talking about downforce when you guys are listening to this uh on day of release the album comes out this coming thursday night slash friday oh, so look forward to that and i think that's about it anything else you guys got that's it for me all right thank you so much for listening guys we love you have a great week everybody take care Peace out.